suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. Despite the reputation of their homeland, some are remarkably thin-skinned, some seem to have multiple lifespans, a few were once thought to be extinct in the region, others have been observed being sacrificed by their own. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Hello and welcome to your listener, episode 403, Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. I'm Trevor, a.k.a. the Iron Fist, also known as the racist Iron Fist, but we'll get onto that later. With me as always, Scott the Velvet Glove. How are you, Scott? Not too bad, thanks, Trevor. And yourself? I've got my microphone this week. Yes, good to see you. You actually had it the other week. It was in a box somewhere in your house. It was in a box somewhere in my house, yeah. 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 And Joe, Joe, the tech guy's with us. Evening, all. Yeah, so if you're in the chat room, say hello. Um, or, or one of them. Yes, the one person in the chat room, say hello. Who are you in there? Keen to know. Yeah. Well, what are we going to talk about in this episode? Uh, a little bit of a uh, feedback from my voice episode. And then, of course, we've got to talk about Israel, Palestine, Gaza Strip and everything that's going on there. Solve the problems of the Middle East in half an hour. That's what podcasters do. So we'll have a go at that. Don's in the chat room. Chris is in the chat room. Good on you guys. Thanks for joining us. Right. So, yeah, last week was my recorded episode on The Voice. I had a lovely time in North Queensland, a tropical island, getting away from it all, and got some feedback. Afterwards, some good and some bad. So Jimmy sent a lovely message, which was, Hi, Trevor. Just wanted to shoot you a quick message after listening to your podcast about The Voice. I just want to congratulate you and your commend you for a well-reasoned and thoughtful opinion, which is contrary to the popular opinions amongst my friends. In fact, it was extremely brave. I will still be voting yes, but I can't say that there was anything you said that I disagreed with. Very well done. Thanks. Fantastic feedback, Jimmy. Like, I don't expect to change people's minds, but that's a lovely comment. Thank you for that. Watley, he sends me voice messages. And the interesting thing about Watley is he's still thinking about it. He's still not sure what he's doing, but he's humming and ahhing and over the place. So some nice feedback from Watley. Roman sent me an email and had a few things that she wanted to sort of pick up with me where she differed. She did just mention generally, moving away from her critique of the podcast, but just generally that she's disappointed at the way the voice debate has been going on from both sides. Gentlemen, your observations of the debate in general that you've seen online, on Facebook, Twitter, and other places, anything about the debate struck you? I think the Yes Camp left their run too late. You know, it's one of those things like it, it's all very well for Albanese to be puffing his chest out saying that we've had some good results in the last month. Yeah, but that was probably three months too late. Had they have started three months ago, 
had they been doing what they've been doing in this last month, then you probably would be looking at a more competitive position for yes. But I think it's probably too late for them. So what have they been doing lately that they weren't doing before? I don't know. I don't watch right. a lot of news. I only read what's in the only read what's online and that type of thing. So right, you know, it's well. Albanese was up here in Queensland, spruiking it and all that sort of thing. I don't know why he's bothering because I think that's a lost state to them. Mm. Um, you know, I would have thought that he's probably better off. You know, what, what's the current Liberal that's the Senate, the moderate in Tasmania? What's her name? Bridget Archer. Bridget Archer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think to myself that, you know, if Albanese wants to actually have a success, he should be down there because apparently Tasmania looks like they're going to vote yes. And that's because Archer has been crisscrossing the whole state saying you've got to get out and vote yes. Mm. You know, and I don't know about New South Wales and Victoria. I think Victoria is looking at going yes. New South Wales is potentially going to go no. But they're just not sure. The two that they can write off are Queensland and WA. Mm. Yeah, Joe, then, the debate in general, any thoughts? <clears throat> I have seen the usual, because, of course, my local potato mm. is, he sent out some brochure which was, oh, it's all indecisive, there's no real meat to it, vote no because we can't be sure, mm. which I have to say is a fairly shit argument. Mm. It's an important argument because you know he's he might as well be attacking the entire constitution because the constitution doesn't actually say you know the makeups of the courts and all that sort of stuff it says you've got to have courts mm-hmm. um so you've got the courts but you just got to make them up so but but aside from that and there was a, a few facebook ads i i really don't do twitter mm. um but in terms of the media i i've seen a lot of coverage which has mostly been aiming on the left, uh, on the yes side. Mm. There was some balanced stuff from the ABC, which was we interviewed a bunch of people pro and con. Mm. And then there was probably the conversation, there was something debunking the UN land grab and talking about some former soap star, apparently, who's got deep into the conspiracy weeds. So there's the United nations something on indigenous persons right there's a, there's a statement on indigenous people that the un has brought out and don't yes know exactly what it says and, and apparently if you oh there's, so there's a lot in there about reparations and land rights and negotiating with a an indigenous council that is nationwide to come in for mining rights and things like that right so it's a sort of a conspiracy argument that if the voice is passed, then these UN resolutions will have effect. And Basically. Consequences. Right, yeah, yep, yep. So I don't know. I don't participate on Twitter. I just look at stuff, mm-hmm. trying to find interesting topics for this podcast. So there's a lot of left-leaning people that I've followed over the time. i tell you what, I think they're really falling into the basket of deplorables argument a lot of the time where it's just exasperation by a lot of people on the left when they say we're losing this referendum, goddamn racists who are out there voting no. And really just essentially saying if anyone is voting no, they must be a racist, they're deplorable people, and isn't it terrible that we've got this situation? And you couldn't possibly be voting no for reasons that were not racist. And um, Brexit was the same, mm-hmm. and I think 
Trump was the same. Mm. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of that going on. So, yeah, the standard of... I don't think of- there's any doubt of that at all. Mm. You know, it's, it's something we said right from when it was first mooted. I thought to myself, well, this is just going to be another... This is going to be a way that the... Yeah, that the yes voters are going to be able to say, well, look at these bunch of racists and that type of thing. And I said right from word go that this was going to be a divisive bloody campaign that would not be, would not show us well at all in, in the light of the whole country. It would make us all look like a pack of lunatics. Mm-hmm. I don't think the rest of the world's going to care itself. Ten, uh, ten months afterwards. <laughs> It's one of those things, I just, I think you're probably right there. I I just think to myself that it sounds like a pretty good argument right now that you've got to actually worry about what the rest of the world's going to say, but I think you're right that in two or three months' time, no one's going to give it to us. And and Australia has an international reputation of being a bunch of racists anyway. Absolutely we do, yeah. So, yeah, so don't just slot in with the perception of Australia anyway. Well, exactly. Yeah, so I don't know, just... The debate itself, I still haven't seen anything that's been impressive in the debating that deals with the topics and the issues. It's very tribal sort of thinking and just bland statements without getting into the nitty-gritty that I like to think I got into in my spiel. People may disagree. But, you know, it's hard enough with well-meaning people to get your ideas across. So... I mentioned Bronman has emailed me with some issues she wants to take up. And the first issue that she mentioned, I really don't think I said it at all. And so I've really just gone back to her and said, look on this first one, tell me exactly what you think I've said because I don't think I said that at all. And, you know, I'll wait for Bronman to come back to me. But and even Paul from Canberra back in August tried to sort of state what he thought my position was. And his sort of one-sentence statement of what he thought it was was completely wrong. It was not my position at all. And so when well-meaning people who are listening and trying to, um, I guess, understand your position, I think get it wrong, then what do you do when people who are not so well-meaning want you know, hear you and, and immediately want to sort of think the worst of you and start... M- almost intentionally misinterpreting what you're saying and seeing the worst in what you say. So I know Broman and Paul would be looking at it, trying to think in the best light, but there are people out there who just want to, you know, take So what you're saying nasty. is, mm-hmm. yeah. do you not remember that interview? No. What was that interview? Oh, Channel 4, probably five years ago, Jordan Peterson. Oh, okay. Who I have no time for. Yes. But she was continually strawmanning everything that he said. Yes. And she'd be saying, so what you're saying is, gives a straw man explanation. And he'd say, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. Yes. And she'd not listen to his answer and then straw man him on the next question. Yeah. Yeah. Now, she was intentionally not well-meaning. She was trying to set him up and trying to push an agenda she had. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that she was doing it deliberately, but certainly she wasn't listening to him. Yes. Yeah. So, so yeah. And then on Twitter, there was this this Twitter person, ex-skeptic is voting yes. If you're interested, go on Twitter and have a look at the the sort of things that this person was saying. And I'm just looking at it going, what are you talking about? You just haven't been listening to what I've been saying. You're just talking nonsense. So I can't be, I don't enter into social media debates and it's just not the forum to. If people are uh, 
well-meaning and nice and they contact me by email, then I'll respond that way. But I just don't, just don't get into online debates. But, yeah, very difficult but to people have. people don't want to have a long-form conversation. Well, not that's, mm. that's possibly too broad, but mm. lots of people don't want to have a long-form conversation mm. because that requires effort. They just want 140 characters, that's it. Yes. I've said my piece. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Have a rant. So, so anyway, that's the position at the moment on The Voice. Bronwyn suggested afterwards maybe just do a little bit on the debate post the decision and what it means to Australia and the sort of Republican Party-style tactics that were used by Dutton and co. Maybe we'll get to that. So, um, it's one of those things. I think that on I think that on Sunday morning, once we know the result, you know, we'll just move on. Mm. You know, I, it it comes down to whether or not Albanese wishes to legislate a voice. Mm. And he said he won't. I know he said he won't. Mm. It's one of those things. It's I was having a chat to a. A Torres Strait Island gentleman this morning when I was out for a walk and he was actually very positive around ATSIC and I said that I had listened to something around that on 7am and the ATSIC decision by the Howard government was wrong because rather than just tinker with it and modernise it and mm. take it down from the top, they abolished the whole bloody thing, you know, which was, which was wrong. And they didn't replace it with anything, which, again, was wrong. So that is why I'm – that's why I favour the voice that, that, that we're getting a, a vote or not for our constitution, yeah, because it would make it a hell of a lot harder for a, a future Tory government to come in and just destroy it. Mm-hmm. Mm. Anyway, that's enough of a rehash of the voice. And mm. I went to vote yesterday. Hmm. Uh, and I was surprised by the number of people who pulled into the place before me and after me. There was a steady stream of people who were early voting. Right. So that was on a Monday. Yeah. Right. Hmm. So, I mean, obviously I'm going to be overseas, but I'd be hmm. surprised that that number of people had a reason not to vote on Saturday. Hmm. It's one of those things they're asking They're asking up here, they're just saying to people when they arrive, do you have a reason, you've got a reason that you can't make anything on Saturday? And he says, oh, yeah, I do. And they just didn't ask what it was. They just said, yeah. I mean, I, I told them that I was travelling and therefore wouldn't be there, but all they said was, do you have a valid reason for early voting? Mm. Yes, go ahead. Oh, okay. I hadn't yeah, that's, of that. exactly, that's exactly what they're doing up here too. Right. Okay. Mm. Okay. Need to have a line ready <laughs> for that. Uh, this is one of those things I'm just going to go in on Saturday. Mm. Uh, now, enough on the voice. Shall we move on to Israel, mm. Palestine? So, yes, uh, over the weekend we had that uh, incident where uh, Palestinians broke out of the Gaza uh, area into across, across the demarcation line and um, um, rockets were fired People were killed by gunfire as well and hostages were taken back into the Gaza and the world is in shock and you've all no doubt read bits and pieces about it. And really, the thing that strikes me about this is that sort of Jewish suffering in Nazi concentration camps 
you know, generated enormous sympathy for Jewish people, rightly so. And we've come around to the point now where, where Israel is really conducting in the Gaza some sort of modern-day Warsaw ghetto mm. for various reasons that we'll get into. But a, a, it's, a ghetto possibly. Mm. Your previous, your show notes say concentration mm. camp, mm. which I would disagree with. Right. And and they are not mm. not doing the wholesale industrial slaughter that the Nazis did. Mm. I like the Warsaw Ghetto one, so I threw that in. Uh, the ghetto is, is probably more close to what's happening. Yeah, particularly with the ghetto in that it was a sealed, contained area that people couldn't move in and out of and... <laughs> But there yeah. is a difference that the Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto mm. hadn't said that they wanted to wipe the Nazis off the face of the earth. Yes. So let's get into let's just set a little bit more of the scene, and then so on the one hand, you've got people particularly sympathetic to the Jewish Israeli side who say this is terrible and an outrage, and and who have been completely silent to all of the Palestinian deaths over the last decades, but who are now outraged by. Israeli deaths. And then on the other hand, you've got people who are saying, well, what did you expect if you set up a situation like this where these people have no hope? And why have you, you know, why are you suddenly now concerned about Israeli deaths when there have been all these Palestinian deaths and a sort of a pro-Palestinian side? And, and well, Joe, add your flavour of opinion to that mix. Well, so the, the whole... Jewish homeland hmm. had been an issue for a, a long time. Yeah, late nineteenth century, they were talking hmm. about the pogroms that had historically happened, and they said we cannot trust a government to look after our rights. We can't trust a government to protect us from other citizens. We need a Jewish homeland. The problem comes from this idea that the Levant was granted to them by God that it is their divine birthright to live in that bit of land. But unfortunately, Jerusalem is considered the holy land for three major religions, all of the Abrahamic religions, and they all want to have control of it. Mm. I, I know that originally there was talk of them going to Madagascar. There was talk at one stage of selling off a large part of WA. I, I think had the Jews moved to northern WA, that would probably have been good for Australia and good for the Jews. Possibly the, not the, for the, the Aboriginals. But, no, I don't think the Reinhardts would have agreed with that, but, you know. You just, well, uh, maybe not, but. Uh, I just think to myself, had they have taken the northwest of Western Australia, then you could carve that into two states. You could call one of them Israel, the other one WA. Yeah, you know, you could have had a, you could have had a, you could have had another state in the Commonwealth that could have had twelve senators and all that sort of thing. Their their native language would have been Hebrew and that type of thing. So you'd end up with you'd end up with a bilingual nation down here. You'd have English and and uh, Hebrew. So you know, sliding doors. Mm. Yeah, I know, and it, it would have. I, you know, I honestly believe that in 1947 a terrible mistake was made. A mm -hmm. terrible, terrible mistake was made. 
Mm. You know, they were trying to recreate something that hadn't existed for 2,000 years. If it ever existed. If it ever existed. You know, let's let's take their, their explanation of history as being reality, that it was... It was the Jewish homeland and all that sort of stuff before the Romans kicked them out. Mm. So let's take that as realistic. Then what they were trying to do was recreate something that hadn't existed for 2,000 years, and that was absolutely crazy that they thought they could do that. You know, and I agree with, I agree with the whole point that Trevor raised, saying that the barbaric manner in which the Jews were treated by the Nazis meant that you know, rightly so, there was a hell of a lot of sympathy for them. And I agreed wholeheartedly with that sympathy. However, you know, the sympathy is being edged away little by little every year when you see them react so blatantly horrible towards the Palestinians. And, you know, it's one of those things. I've got an old friend of mine up in Toowoomba who said that what they ought to do is they would put a sign facing out from the um, Palestinian border and that sort of stuff saying Arbeit macht frei, which is work will set you free, you know, which was the um, Nazi concentration camp logo that they had on all of them. So anyway, mm. Mm. It's one of those things. Is- oh. I'm sorry. Are you, are you back with us, Scott? No. I think he pulled the cable out. <laughs> I think he did. No, um, he's back now. Yep. I am back, yeah. Yeah. It's one of those things, I just think that a terrible, terrible mistake was made in 1947 and mm. we've now got to deal with it right now and I think the only sensible solution is a two-state solution. But if part of that, what, what is it, around about 50% of the Palestinians are represented by Hamas, which is completely opposed to Israel even existing, then I just don't think you're going to be going to get a two-state solution. Palestine should be an Islamic state. Yeah, I know that. And that's that's even worse. Mm -hmm. You know, because there's there's been no case there'd be no uh, chance of it being secular at all. No, they want a Western uh, a Western Iran. As Mm. as in an Iran to the west of the current West Iran. Mm. Yeah, I know. Yeah, and the problem is that the West Bank is just dotted with all of these settlements that are some of them Palestinian, some of them Jewish, with these corridors, in co- you know, connecting them. Very hard to, you know, do a proper borderline now in that area. Well, so, it'd be virtually, virtually impossible. Mm, you it's know, a mess. It's, it's a right mess. And who predicted the mess in the first place, Scott? Albert Einstein. Oh, did he? Who wrote? Who wrote in the beginning? This is shortly after 1947, I think. So let me just see what he wrote here. Yes, sir. When a real and final catastrophe should befall us in Palestine, the first responsible for it would be the British, and the second responsible for it, the terrorist organisations built up from our own ranks. I'm not willing to see anybody associated with those misled and criminal people. So. He, he saw terrorism coming from within Jewish ranks because of the nature but, of what was but, being set up. But interestingly, the terrorism was the Jews against the British, mm. and it was the Americans who funded the Jewish landing. Mm. They provide the arms and the equipment. Mm-hmm. 
So, yeah, I mean, you go back to 1917 with the Balfour Declaration, Mm. which was the British talking to the Jews and saying, yes, you can set up a Jewish homeland inside Palestine. Mm. Yeah, but I think the British were making those sorts of guarantees to everyone at the time. Yeah, absolutely. They were trying to to undo the Ottoman Ottoman Empire. Yes. Yeah. You know, so they were making promises to the Palestinians, they were making promises to the Jews, and not they were making promises to the French. Yeah, I know. It was one of those. It's a hell of a mess. Mm. How messy has it been in recent times? Bernard Keane was writing in Crikey, just talking about the number of deaths on the Palestinian side. So in 2022, there was 117, 172 Palestinians murdered. This is from the UN office for the coordination of humanitarian affairs. So this isn't sort of Israeli or Palestinian figures, but sort of UN figures. 80 80 Palestinians killed in 2021. In the past decade, 3,081 Palestinian civilians killed, 132,000 injured. They Um, they just want to grab the lands, though. Yes, the Palestinians. No, no, the United Nations. Yes. Thanks, Joe. Well, Just like they're trying with the Aboriginals over here. Yes. That's nasty, UN. What else we got here? Uh, so that was that. There's all sorts of statistics available about the poor treatment of the Palestinians at the hands of the Israelis. But as you rightly point out, Joe, there's an existential risk from the Palestinians towards the Israelis. Well, not just the Palestinians. Mm. All of the Arab states have tried a number of times to wipe Israel off the map. Mm. And they've, all got, they've always got a bloody nose out of it. Mm. Uh, they have, but that doesn't mean that they don't want to and that they wouldn't, given half a chance, try again. Yeah, I know that. Mm. It's, it's probably the nuclear, the, the fact that the Israelis have a nuclear bomb that has stopped it happening again in the last whatever it is 40 years 50 years mm. uh, 67 was the last time it happened that was the Yom Kippur war wasn't it i thought they said 50 50 years and a day since the last one so it was 72 okay 73 okay gotcha it's interesting just the sort of the propaganda and the framing and how media pushes certain lines and people push their own angles and how subtly this can be done. So Alan McLeod in a tweet pointed out reporting by BBC News and World News. And so the BBC reported more than 700 people have been killed in Israel since Hamas launched its attacks on Saturday. And at the same time, they wrote, more than 500 people have died in Gaza after Israel launched massive retaliatory airstrikes, according to Gaza's health ministry. So on the one hand, it's saying 700 killed in Israel, 500 in Gaza. But there's subtle things here, like it said 700 people have been killed in Israel, where it said 500 people have died in Gaza. And the one in relation to Gaza also finished with according to Gaza's health ministry, which casts doubt on whether you want to believe their figures or not. So there's just a framing there that instead of saying 500 were killed in Gaza, it's just have died. And these are sort of subtle 
framings of things that can make a difference in your perception of which side you're going to favour, if any, in these things. So I thought that was interesting. Albanese, our Prime Minister, has come out clearly on Israel's side in this. It's interesting that UK Labour last year, two years ago, had a big spat mm -hmm. between the pro-Israeli and the pro-Palestine factions yep. with the accusations of anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. So, mm. and, and I'm fairly sure Corbyn, because he was pro-Palestine, that was one of the reasons he was toppled. Yes, for sure. Yep. In the John Menadou blog, there was a guy, Paul Haywood-Smith and Adelaide King's Council of some 20 years. He was the initial chairperson of the Australian Friends of Palestine Association and he's authored a book, The Case for Palestine. He was writing in the John Menadou blog saying that there's a pressing need for Australians to assess the situation from an informed and balanced position. Australians must understand that what they are seeing is the response of a people pushed beyond endurance. And essentially there's been a blockade in the Gaza for 16 years. Nothing goes in or out without Israel, Israeli approval. And now what did he say here is, Australia's failure to act has contributed to the current quagmire. Had the ALP on gaining office in 2022 done what its rank and file had called for at a, at a preceding national conference, namely to recognise Palestine, who knows what might have followed? And he argues that some other countries might have followed recognising Palestine if Australia had, and maybe that would have been enough to keep them happy. I don't know about that. But in any I event, don't think it would, I don't think it would have kept, no, kept Hamas from, from launching yeah, the attack. Correct. And because we've already finished saying not so long ago that nobody cares what Australia thinks or does about anything anyway. But that was interesting that ALP conference had called for recognising Palestine. Wasn't aware of that, but ALP leadership doesn't follow that line. I thought the vast majority of countries have recognised Palestine. Mm. Probably not the sort of main Western countries. Would no. that be right? Yeah. I think so. Mm. So, yeah. Of course, Richard Marles, our Defence Minister, said the unprovoked attacks from militant Hamas on Israel are abhorrent. There is no justification for these brutal attacks on Israel. Australia calls for these attacks to end and recognise Israel's right to defend itself. So you know about the US, I mean... A, there's a large Jewish vote in the US, which is why the US very, very heavily supports Israel. Mm. But the evangelicals believe that the second coming of Christ is going to be kicked off by a war of the Middle East. Right. So a lot of evangelicals are deliberately trying to foment war in the Middle East mm. because they believe it heralds the second, uh, second coming of Christ. Yes. And a lot of weapons manufacturers are quite happy to see yes. trouble there as well. Yep. So, yeah, so that was Richard Marles. Meanwhile, the Greens, Jenny Leong uh, from the Greens, she was complaining on Twitter because Albanese had said that the pro-Palestine protest should not go ahead and... Bernard Keane had commented, what next, a ban on criticising Israel? And this Jenny Leong, the MP, Greens MP, said, but apparently lighting up 
the Australian Parliament and Sydney Opera House in support of those bombing Palestinian people in Gaza into oblivion is legit. Disgraceful to see political leaders fail to recognise the complexity and reality of this human rights and humanitarian crisis. So what do you think, Scott or Joe? Should the Australian Parliament or the Sydney Opera House be lit up in Israeli colours or flags to show support or should we stay neutral on the opposition? Uh, I'm not entirely sure about that. Mm. It's one of those things, say, I can understand the government wanting to light the place up blue and white just to say that, you know, we're on the Israel side and that type of thing because this does appear to have... Should we be on Israel's side in this... Oh, I think we've got to rec- I think we've got to recognise a Palestinian state, and you know we've got to actually sit down with Fatah and that sort of stuff and actually negotiate with them. I don't think we should be talking to Hamas, but I do believe that we should be talking to Fatah and that sort of stuff to try and get something nutted out with them. Mm. And I think that if the I think if the rest of the Western world would go along with that and saying, look, we're going to negotiate with Fatah, we're not going to negotiate with Hamas, then eventually Hamas will end up withering on the vine and dying. Unfortunately, Hamas is supported by the people in in the Gaza Strip. In the Gaza Strip, yeah, I know that, mm. uh, and that's why uh, the the blockade is because Hamas was rocketing Israeli settlements, uh, and so it was to stop weapons being brought in, mm. uh, particularly from Egypt. There was a huge problem with uh, missiles and rockets coming in from Egypt. Mm. Um. I, I I really don't know how you solve it. There is no solution, but no, there, there, there is no solution. You, I, you you've I, got to actually you got to bang their two heads together because you no, know, they're you know they're they're both. That's they're what they're both, doing. Yeah, I know, but you, you've got to actually sit, you know you've got to actually bang their heads together because you know one one's the tribe of Abraham, the other one's the tribe of Ibrahim, and they were both brothers. You know, oh, it's family fights are the worst. Yeah. yeah, I know, but this is the whole point. The world is being dragged into this whole bloody family feud, which mm. is ridiculous. Just getting back to this provoked and unprovoked. So Richard Miles said the unprovoked attacks from militant Hamas on Israel are abhorrent. And Caitlin Johnston in an article quotes a whole bunch of people who, like the White House, for example, said, the United States unequivocally condemns the unprovoked attacks and House Speaker Jim Jordan said, the unprovoked terror attack today. And Robert F. Kennedy Jr. said, the ignominious, unprovoked and barbaric attack. And she goes on and on with people saying unprovoked. Like, Joe, even somebody with a fairly hardish position like yours on the danger of Palestinians having access to weapons, et cetera, et cetera, you couldn't claim it was an unprovoked attack. Like you'd say, oh, they had plenty of provocation to do what they did. Would you say it was unprovoked? You'd be happy to say, yeah, it was provoked, but it's all in context. I was going to say it's provoked on both sides, but at at the end of the day, I I don't think the Jewish people should be there. Hmm. It it wasn't like it was an, an empty piece of ground that they bought. They no, claimed it by divine right and invaded. Yeah, and, you know, and, and it's bloody crooked what they actually did. You know, they, they shot the poor bastards up that couldn't get away on time and it was mm. really criminal the way they actually 
took over the place. Yeah, but you you can have a pretty dim view of Palis, of Palestinians and Hamas and and yet you really can't go to the point of saying it was unprovoked. There was plenty of provocation there. It's just a function of of what the situ- situation's been in. So, but yeah, people are running around saying yeah. it was an unprovoked attack. Yeah, I know that, but, you know, it's just one of those things. I've said it before and I'll say it again. You know, do you honestly believe if the PLO were as well armed as the IDF that they would show the same sort of restraint that the IDF has shown, has shown or would they drive the Jews into the Mediterranean? I think mm. the latter would be more would be more likely. What? Couldn't argue against you. Couldn't mm. argue against you. So it's just a mess. It's a mess oh, it's from its inception mess. and it, it's, it there is no absolute, solution. It was an absolute travesty that they actually did it. Mm. Mm. Right. What else can we say about it? Um, I'll read a bit of Caitlin Johnston. Nobody can tell me what the Palestinians should do instead that is both realistic and reasonable. It would be easy for me to sit here in my armchair and say the Palestinians should either maintain the status quo or lie down relinquish their homes and homeland and accept whatever table scraps they're able to get. But we can see it from the Palestinian perspective that that's not reasonable. It would be easy for me to sit in my armchair and argue that Palestinians should just focus on securing a one-state or two-state solution, but we can see from the Israeli political landscape that that's not realistic. So what else can they do? What reasonable and realistic options do they have? No one can provide me with a satisfactory answer. Uh, ultimately, this is just Palestinians doing what they feel they need to do out of total desperation because they feel backed into a corner with no other options. And they feel no, backed I into just, a corner with no other options because that does not appear to be the case. But Fatah seemed to have reached a better settlement, a better agreement. So it's not the Palestinians, it's mm-hmm. Hamas. Mm-hmm. So Fatah being in the West Bank. West Bank. West mm. Bank, yeah. Mm. It's one of those things. I just think to myself that I, I can understand where she's coming from, but by the same token, what's this going to get them? So all it's going to do is it's all it's going to do is result in Israel taking out a very heavy hammer and they're going to smash it down hard on the on the people that are in, in Gaza. So let's talk about West Bank then, Joe. Should the people in the Palestinians in the West Bank just accept what they've got? And and Israel should come to some two state solution with the with the Palestinians in the West Bank. That's what was being negotiated. Now I think Israel, from what I understand, the new settlers are coming in and building willy nilly as well. Mm. It doesn't seem the current Israeli government is up for a two state solution. No, even in the, not. even in the West Bank. Well, let's whether just ignore you, the Gaza for the moment. But whether whether you stick UN peacekeepers in, mm-hmm. as has happened in a number of states. Yeah, but see, the, you're going to have to have the UN there permanently. Yes, right? absolutely. There are so many pocketed little settlements intermixed amongst each other. You'd need an enormous force if you were to... Uh, repartition. Mm. Yes. It's one of those things. I think, the, I think the Jews are going to have to abandon their whole settlements and that sort of stuff, but rather than actually bulldozing them like they did the last time they abandoned them, they ought to actually pack up and then leave and leave behind the homes and everything that were built there for the Palestinians to actually inhabit. Right. So the Jew... 
the Israeli should, should yeah. retreat yeah, they, they back. Should, they out should of, retreat out of the settlements yeah. and they should leave the settlement buildings and that sort of stuff behind with keys and everything for the Palestinians to take them up. Yeah, that's just never going to happen, is it? I know, because, you know, the last time they even, did that, which was Even if the government the, told them to, they wouldn't do it. Yeah, I know. It's the last time they actually retreated from a settlement and that sort of stuff. It was a ridiculous situation that they had a that they actually bulldozed the settlements and that sort of stuff, and then they withdrew, mm. which was absolutely crazy. It was a real churlish thing that the Israelis did there. You know where they said, "Well, you know," they basically raised their middle finger and said, "Well, fuck you! You're not having our buildings." Mm. You know, which was very churlish to do. Mm. Noisy Andrew, what would I do if my family had been forced into a ghetto for three generations? I don't know. I'm very lucky that I was born in Australia, so I don't know what I would do. Now, I can understand where you're coming from because the Palestinians have been forced into this ghetto situation for three generations. Do I believe that they're actually going to get anywhere with, with their violence and that sort of stuff? No, I don't. Do I understand why they've actually taken to the streets and that type of thing, hurling Molotov cocktails at the at the Jews? Absolutely, I do. I fully understand that. Do I support them? No, I don't. But it's one of those things. I don't know what the answer is. You know, it's a terrible, terrible mistake that was made in 1947. Mm. Hmm. Um, yeah. What the Israeli defence minister said, he said, quote, I've ordered a complete siege on the Gaza Strip. There will be no electricity, no food, no fuel. Everything is closed. We are fighting human animals and we act accordingly. He terrible. Oh, no, I know. It's and one that of those just, things. It just... It, it creates the next generation of Hamas supporters is the problem. Yes. It does. Mm. You know, because... Even without religion, I was talking to my wife about this because we are just talking about religious differences, and I was like, even if you wiped out religious differences, there's so much bad blood now where just as a, you know, on each side, but particularly the Palestinian side, would be saying, those goddamn people over there were responsible for killing... My mother, my father, my uncle, my, my kids, whatever, just a whole range of family members. Very impossible to sort of get these people to. Uh, come to the I family. had this growing up with Northern Ireland, mm. which, you know, that was 400 years ago mm. that that all started. Mm. And they, it's a very uneasy peace agreement. Mm. I, I think the answer is. It, is is breaking up the the enclaves. It, it's forcing them to intermingle. It's forcing them to go to the same schools. Yeah, but you know that's that all sounds well and good, but it's just not going to happen because you've got no. people that are you've got people that speak Arabic. You've got people that speak Hebrew. So what are they going to do? Which language are they going to settle on to educate their kids? Are they going to educate them in Hebrew or educate them in Arabic? You know, I can't imagine a Jewish family and that sort of stuff being particularly happy that their kids are being taught in Arabic. I think they're all bilingual, or lots of them are bilingual. Yeah, I know they're, they're English and Arab, English and Arab, English and Arabic, or English and Hebrew. 
So, you know, I suppose you could actually say, well, we're going to teach everything in English. I think even the Israelis speak Arabic. Oh, do they? Okay. Yeah. Mm. I don't know. But it's just, uh, forget the language, just there wouldn't be the trust in the communities for each other. Yeah, what a what a complete mess. On the oh yeah, you've got another one saying, you know, would you would you believe that creation of Pakistan in nineteen forty seven was a terrible mistake? Yeah, yes. yeah, partition absolutely it was, was a, a terrible mistake. Hmm. You know, it was the only thing that it was the only thing that kept them from killing each other, but it was a disaster the way it happened. Hmm. Uh, and I don't know that it did keep them from killing each other because there was. Oh, there were terrible border disputes and everything like that. But, but even even during partition, as partition happened, there were yeah. horrible, horrible massacres. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, I, th- I think it, um, India should have remained a, a single country. A single country that was secular, that didn't have an Islamic side and a Hindu side. Uh, and now we've got the Sikhs as well who want their own homeland. Hmm. It's one of those things. The old boy must be rolling in his grave because it's which all he wanted. Which, which Gandhi? All oh, right. Well, all Gandhi. All Gandhi wanted was a was a it was a secular India. Was in a, well, I I'd heard it was Nehru who wanted the secular India, and Gandhi, Gandhi was a Hindu nationalist. I don't know about that. I thought I mm. thought it was the other way around. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't tell. I thought both of them wanted a secular country. Mm. Mm. Noisy Andrew says we can't afford a cricket team that good. <laughs> the best of India and Pakistan together. Yeah. Yeah. Still on the comedy it's line. One of the, it's one of those things. I just think to myself, if they could actually, if they could actually get their act together over over cricket, then that would have actually solved a hell of a lot of the problems. Still on the comedy line. Good news from Canada. Breaking news: Canadian lawmakers have announced that, in solidarity with Israel, they won't honour Waffen SS veterans for a one whole week. Do you remember that scene where the Canadian Parliament stood up and gave a standing ovation to some sort of Nazi SS veteran? Did you see that? I don't remember that. He was a Ukrainian. Yes. Who had fought against the Soviet Union during the uh, Nazi occupation. Right. So he had joined the Waffen SS as a, basically it was a foreign legion. Right. So he had fought, he, he'd joined a foreign legion of Germans to fight against the Soviets during the Soviet occupation of Ukraine. Right. And he had joined up as a 17-year-old. Right. Did he so, serve a standing ovation in Canadian Parliament, Joe? Uh, it, it's, it's very difficult to say. If he'd been a Soviet soldier, should he have had a standing ovation? The Soviets were as brutal as the Germans. Right. In that case, so, probably not. Yeah. Probably shouldn't I, be giving standing I, ovations I, I think, to soldiers. I think there were no rights, there were no wrongs on that. Oh. It was a horrible... Mm. It was a terrible clusterfuck, I think. Mm. Yeah. Mm. How's that Ukrainian uh, counteroffensive going? Oh, no, wait, we finished with, with Gaza? The Ukrainian counteroffensive... You're done and dusted with Gaza? Okay. I think so. Right. Some pace. Oh, is it? It is very, very slowly. Yeah, right. it's one of those things. They're going to have to pull up stumps on it before too long because the raining season's about to start, mm. and then after that, it's going to go to snow. So, yeah, I think that we'll have to wait until next year to find out where it's going to end up at all. Right. Well, so the 
the military analyst that I listened to has actually said, because these aren't large-scale armoured movements, actually the minor things that are happening will carry on happening through the winter mm. because it's a, a handful of troops. Basically, because the the amount of artillery, you cannot amass a large armoured formation to break through the lines. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it's had to be piecemeal. You take a position, dig into that position, make yourself set up, and then move to the next position. Mm. So it, it's slowly inching forward. According to the New York Times, they put out a graph saying that since January 1, Ukraine has gained 143 square miles of territory. Yes. The only problem is... The, the Russians gained 331 square miles. Absolutely. So because, net- because the Ukrainians are attacking mm. heavily defended lines mm. and the Russians are effectively attacking some Ukrainians in a field. Right. So, so completely different okay. uh, le- levels of effort required. Yeah. Uh, and, and the point is the Ukrainians are trying to inch their artillery forward enough to break the land bridge mm. to Crimea. And once they do that, effectively, the Crimean Peninsula is isolated. Mm. Uh, the Russians regaining land really... Doesn't matter. It, 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 it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's fields. So it, it's important to Ukraine as there are foreign invaders on our soil. Mm. It's important to the villagers who are being terrorised by the Russian soldiers who appear to be badly disciplined, underpaid, and are taking it out on the villagers that they can get their hands on and looting the houses because they're not getting enough money from the army, so they're taking whatever they can. Um, but, but in strategic terms, I don't think the land mass that the Russians are taking has any major impact. Hmm. So anyway, with the counteroffensive, probably... But no, to be continued next summer, almost. At this oh, point. absolutely. So, <clears throat> so the Russian Minister of Defence has said the war has to last till 2025 at least. Right. So the Russians are in it for the long haul. Right. The question is whether the Western Allies will keep up providing munitions and... Right. and- if, if we're waiting now another till the next summer, can mm-hmm. we really call it the same counteroffensive, if that's the case? Probably another counteroffensive. What I right. thought. Mm. Okay. Ah, anyway, it depends if they manage to inch forward enough that they can get their guns through next summer. I would say it's still part of the same counteroffensive. Hmm. Mm. Anyway, you listen a lot to Perun. So, yes. Yes. So sounds like John in the chat room also listens to or watches Perun. So. I read a bit of Moon over Alabama. So. Uh, yeah, the comments in there were interesting. Yes. There's a lot of crazies um, in there. But there's some good a, a stuff in of, there. A, a lot of Russian bots in there, yes. Right. Yeah. But, you know, it had references to the New York Times article, for example. So mm. There's things like that in there that are good. Mm. Yes. All right. Well, what can you, you know, wrapping up. As we're about to wrap up, dear listener, really, there's just no hope with Israel-Palestine. It's an it just cannot be resolved. 
without some. I don't think it can be resolved either. Without some an ugly, massive war of some sort, and in the and in the follow up I, I, to that, there's some new demarcation. But it will take something quite extraordinary, and this will be a byproduct of something else that's extraordinary. Just can't see it happening in isolation on its own. I honestly think the best outcome is UN peacekeepers enforcing a demilitarized zone and making sure that the the two warring sides can't get to each other. Yeah. But there's so many pockets of different settlements in that West Bank. That yeah. it's it's I, I and again I think you have to and the fact that there's actually three enclaves because mm. there's the Golan Heights as well. Mm. But the Israelis are not going to give up the Golan Heights because that's where Syria started shelling during the whichever... The war it was. Yeah. Mm. What a mess. We are so lucky here to be out of all that. Um, right, dear listener, that'll do us. Joe, are you around next week? When do you go? I fly out on Thursday. Right. You're not sure where you'll be or what your situation will oh, be. Oh, well, the first couple of weeks I am in Devon. I'm hoping that I'm going to have internet there. Mm. And it starts at 9.30 in the morning, UK. Mm. Ooh. Yeah. Currently 9.30 in the morning? No, it's actually 10.30 because right. they've still got daylight savings until the end of October. Right. Well, you'll come back in the next episode as our European correspondent <laughs> rather than <laughs> rather than Joe the tech guy. So yes. a new role for you. <laughs> You'll be our ear on the ground for all things. Uh, all things UK. Yes, yeah. All right, well, dear listener, we'll talk to you then. Bye for now. And it's a good night from me. And it's a good night from him. Good night. Oh, hello there. I'm left wing. You can probably tell from the cultural Marxism coming out of my face. But let's not waste too much time pointing out that these pantomime villains are bad. The more interesting question is who is to blame for making neo-Nazis look like the new rock and roll punk? And the answer is unfortunately, partly us. Don't get me wrong, I love left-wing values and hope that one day they'll win out across the globe. It's just that on that day, I don't want any actual left-wing people to be alive to see it happen. Why? Because we're fucking useless. I mean, first of all, Brexit. What the fuck happened there? Well, the left employed a cunning two-pronged strategy by one, calling every Leave voter a racist, and two, failing to put forward a positive case for Remain. Yeah. Right. Weird how not engaging 17 million Brits and slacking them off instead didn't win them over, but at least yelling RACIST online made us feel good about ourselves and had no bad, long-lasting side effects. The UK has voted to leave the European Union. Ah, shit. Well, don't worry, after Brexit we learnt our lesson. And then the US election came along and we thought, nah, let's just do that again. You could put half of Trump's supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Not surprisingly, the left's campaign of vote for us, you pieces of shit, didn't pan out so well. Uh, I don't know what I said, ah! Uh. But don't worry, it's not just the big battles. The left are totally useless on a small scale as well. This is largely thanks to the foul brick of nightmares we all have sewn into our hands, which means we're also bleeding woke all the time that we find something new to be offended by every few seconds. To find out more about why this new outraged left is losing ground, I sat down with moral philosopher and future doxing victim, Dr. Tim Dean. 
It's the case these days that a lot of people on the left see any kind of criticism of their methods as a criticism of their goals. And that makes the kind of discourse and the dialogue that we're having really aggressive and quite corrosive as well. So why didn't calling Trump supporters racist and sexist help the Democrats win the election? I think that if you call a bunch of people sexist or racist but they don't believe that they are sexist or racist, all it's going to do is get them to rally around their own tribe and gather together and fight back and that's exactly what we saw. I mean, how would you feel if I said you're entrenched in white privilege? I was going to raise that actually because we are two, two white men. Traditionally the left were in favour of things like you know world peace, equality for all, lots of lovely things. How is it the left is taking that sort of utopia and packaging it in a way that makes me want to swallow my own face? The way some people on the left have been thinking has changed. They're looking for any kind of signal that underneath you're actually a write-off. And so one slip of language, one slip of behaviour, and that shows that you're in the bad camp and you're just suddenly excluded. So the left lack nuance, they're too reactive to criticism and morally puritanical. Anything else? Well, why don't we talk about identity politics? Yeah, let's talk about that. The goals are absolutely noble, but one of the problems of identity politics is it breaks off these groups into these silos, into these kind of knowledge silos, and it stifles the possibility of engagement between those kinds of silos. So Tim, I want the left to win. You've got a beard. You obviously want the left to win as well. What can we do to stop losing the big battles and start generating some genuine systemic change? We've got to move beyond words. We've got to get practical. We can join a political party. Even better, start a new political party. Basically, just stop being some outraged virtue signaling prats.